no secret, I am a storyteller. My mission is to create and share stories that disrupt traditional narratives, white narratives, and to create spaces of belongings. And this podcast is a space to share all those beautiful brown voices. One that I am very excited to share with you today is Brie Myshack. She is telling stories about one particular subject that hits home for her, breast cancer. Um, when I turned 17 is when I had to start navigating um, screenings. Um, I had to start doing breast sonograms every six months. And that was when it really hit me in the face of, you know, your mom's story is, is also part of your story and impacts your health as well. Bree is a brown woman and one of the co-founders of Breasties, an all-inclusive nonprofit that creates community for survivors of breast and gynecological cancer, but also for pre-vivers, thrivers, and caregivers. My name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. Also, happy Mother's Day week. Shout out to Martha Rivas. I love you, Mom. Full transparency here, Brie is going to sound a little different in the first couple of minutes of the interview because there was a technical error in the studio the day of our recording. You know, Mercury was in retrograde. Sorry, fam. Things happen. Uh, I'm going to start with the same way we started last time, which is these little rapid fire questions. Uh, start of every show, we're going to ask our guests these questions to get them get to know them a little better. Uh, are you ready? Yeah, you know, I'm actually more prepared this time, so I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, favorite brown TV show, past or present? Um, favorite brown TV show. So I've been watching a few shows, Spanish speaking shows. Um, and one that I always go back to is Casa de Flores on Netflix. I've heard good things. (laughs) Y tú, Virginia. Olvidaste cuidar que nuestros secretos no cayeran en las manos equivocadas. Así que buena suerte. Favorite brown film, past or present? Um, answer is probably the same would be um, Selena. Yeah, classic. Um, what is your favorite portrayal of a mother figure in a TV show or film? Um, would be Jersey Girl. So it's a movie oh. that came out in early 2000s. And actually the reason I felt so seen by it was because the mother dies <laughs> um, in childbirth. Um, it's Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck. Um, and I just always thought JLo kind of looked like my mom. So that was just like very, very cool to see as a young person. Um, but what was so beautiful about it is the portrayal of the way that the father, Ben Affleck, like mothers his daughter um, in the wake of losing his wife, um, his daughter's mother. Where are you going? I don't want to be around you. I didn't even want you to come to the show to watch it either. Oh, come on. I don't. You're not allowed to come because I don't even like you anymore. Get back here, young lady. Hey, no. I'm talking to you. Hey, young lady. Get back here, young lady. No, you can't and... It was just one of my favorite movies growing up. I felt very, very seen. And I think for me, the lesson was um, 
that your father can mother you. Mm. Do you, uh, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like your father mothered you well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think growing up, the hardest thing for me was grieving that I never got this mothering, especially from a young age or this like, you know, very quintessential um, feminine energy of nurture. Um, and really as an adult, I've learned that um, it just looked a little different, but my dad hundred percent mothered me in his own way. If you feel comfortable, can you tell us a little bit about your, your mom? Uh, who was she? What do you remember about her? Mm-hmm. So my mom passed away from breast cancer when I was five years old. So my personal memories of her are pretty limited. Um, but I would say that I live my life like every day in honor of her and celebration of her. Um, I've been told that I look a lot like her, that I act a lot like her. Um, and she was just from what I know and, and from my brief time with her, just an incredible human um, and dedicated herself to serving other people. She worked as a nurse um, and she actually, a story my dad has always told us is the day that she was diagnosed um, with terminal breast cancer. So she was actually misdiagnosed several times. So it became um, a very, very frustrating time for both her and my dad, where she, after having my younger brother, um, he wouldn't breastfeed from one of her, from her left breast. And, um, she grew increasingly concerned about why that was and was misdiagnosed several times, um, which is a common experience for women of color. Um, and so when she was diagnosed, she was given a terminal diagnosis. Uh, five is a young age to lose someone, especially to something like cancer. Was it explained to you at five years old, what had, what had happened or what age do you get that conversation? No, you know, it wasn't. Um, looking back, it was something that slowly took up like more of a presence in my life. Very slowly, I, you know, from when she was diagnosed, it wasn't ever explained to us, but it was, you know, we're, we're going to the hospital a lot to like your mom can no longer take you to school to the only time you see her is in the hospital. Um to then having a funeral at such a young age. And I remember my brothers and I were like, just so excited to ride in a limo to the service, like not comprehending that this was our mother's mm, funeral. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it was a very, from what I, but what I've learned now, it was a very like child understanding of um, loss and cancer and grief. Um, and I would say it became like very present for me as a young person in school, having to explain on mother's day, you know, like why I'm not making a mother's day card um, or why my family looked different from my peers that I think hit me the hardest at that age. And then as I grew older and learned, especially about breast cancer risk is when it really took a front seat in my life of, of grief, of really opening up um, this grief that was pushed down and understanding breast cancer risk for myself. I first met Bree through my partner. They were doing a yoga teacher training together. And my partner came home and said, oh my gosh, there's this woman, Brie, and her company, The Breasties, and you have to meet her. And so we had her over for dinner, and she was right. And so I thought it would be extremely important for y'all to also hear Brie's story, because you need to know what Breasties is doing for our brown community and everyone else who is impacted by breast and gynecological cancer, including caregivers. And so when she joined me in the studio, one of the first things we got into was a condition that often surrounds sickness, 
grief. What is a what can your father teach anyone about uh, about grief? I think before we get into precautionary measures and stuff like that in your beautiful work, how does one grieve properly? Grieve and how does one hold space for others to grieve? Such a good question. I don't know if there's a right way to properly grieve. Um, I just know that holding on to it is the worst thing you can do um, by pushing it down. Um, I didn't even really choose to start working through my grief. I I feel like I was forced to by my co-founders, by the community. Um, I was sharing my mom's story all the time. I was sharing my story all the time. I think it's just finding that space where you feel safe to start exploring um, how you feel and and knowing that all the feelings are so valid, anger, um, sadness, um, regret, anything and everything is, is so valid. And just finding if it's not, you know, for me, it was so hard to have that space with my family because we all had experienced this loss. And now I look back and wish we had all been able to be there for each other. But we all kind of went to our separate rooms, our separate spaces and felt this immense sadness on our own. Um, and I think it was just it didn't feel safe to unravel that for each other. And I thankfully found that space in this breast, in the breasties and the community to start unraveling. So I think finding whatever that safe space is for you. And it might not look like what you think it should look like. So at 17, you start doing these precautionary measures. What drove you to be safe? Yeah, it was actually a doctor um, who had heard my family history and had said, you know, you should probably just start some ultrasound screenings, which are um, very low um, risk for screening. Um, and on my first, at my first screening, they found a suspicious mass on my left side. And I remember driving home that day um, just thinking it was just screening. I was getting ready to go back to school. And I called my dad from the car, um, and he just collapsed in the driveway because we just thought, you know, that I had a lot more time. Um, yeah. And so from there, uh, it was benign, thankfully. Um, but it really hit me that I had a lot more to think about than I thought. Um, my mom was diagnosed around age 39. So I thought I had a bit more time. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you're, still, <laughs> you're still thriving here yeah. with us. Amen. How did you find community? Yeah. What is Yeah, so it was wrapped up again in my story. I had this benign mass. I had a biopsy of it. Um, The radiologist who did that procedure had said, you should look into genetic testing. Um, There's a lot of information that people are learning about genetics of cancer and if you're high risk or not, and they can tell you a lot about it. And I said, okay, I want to do that. I had learned a lot about Angelina Jolie, who um, in 2008 wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about her decision to have a preventative mastectomy because of the BRCA BRCA gene. And I just thought, oh my gosh, like that's incredible that science is here. I want to find out. And I tried to get genetic testing at the time. I was turned away, unfortunately, because it wasn't covered by insurance. Hmm. Um, But I had- Is it covered now? It's covered now, Yes. It's much more accessible now. Are you recommending that everyone listening get this test? I would recommend if you have any family history of cancer, it doesn't just have to be breast cancer, that you do a genetic testing. Yes. And is it as simple as like I call my general practitioner and and just ask for this? Um, So it's done. It can be done through saliva or blood, um, and it can be done in different doctor's offices. I would highly recommend going to a genetic counselor, getting a referral for a genetic counselor, because they can tell you 
all of the information that you need and you essentially like write out your family tree of um, different diagnoses and ages and um, they'll help you know like which test is the best fit for you. Okay, so you're, uh, you, you, insurance is not covering your test at the time? At the time, I was about to go to college. Um, I thought, I'll think about this after college. Um, I was recovering from my biopsy. Um, I wanted to just focus on school things. So then when I graduated, I went to graduate school for journalism um, at Columbia, and we were doing um, graduate theses around anything that we wanted to write about. And I wanted to write about access to genetic testing. Um, my uh, thesis advisor did not like that topic. Why? Um, he thought it's been there, done that, um, that mm. nobody wants to hear about like breast cancer or breast cancer risk anymore. He? Yeah. Okay, he would. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Um, and I did it anyway. And I met my co-founder um, at a support group meeting when I was looking for sources. And we went to the support group meeting and were the youngest in the room. Um, it was for people who are high risk of breast cancer. And everybody had kind of dismissed us. And my co-founder had actually just had a preventative mastectomy because of the BRCA gene that Angelina Jolie also has. And we just knew like we had to do more. We had to create spaces where people all felt welcomed. And then she in introduced me to my other co-founders um, who we all met variously like through online. Um, and it just kind of bubbled from there. When uh, you say support group, was this like a meetup? Like, you know, the meetup like dot com or whatever or is it? No, it was it was um, in a conference room. <laughs> my co-founder likes to say that it was um, it was a conference table and it was a styrofoam plate in the middle with Chex Mix on it. <laughs> um, obviously pre-COVID days. And that was it. And we looked around and said, how is this it? How is this all that exists? Um, it was like a space that was just rented out that this organization was able to use. And we just we were just determined to do more. Um, what is Breasties' mission? Yeah, the mission of the Breasties is to provide support, resources, education to anyone impacted by breast and gynecologic cancer. So that means anyone, whether you're a survivor, whether you're an active treatment, whether you're a previvor on the preventative side like myself, um, whether you're a stage four thriver, or whether you're a caregiver. So really we say anyone that identifies with the mission is a Breastie. And the reason um, that we're so all-inclusive and that we include people both impacted by breast and gynecologic cancer is because we found that often if you're impacted by one, you're high risk for another or vice versa. Um, and so we just found in starting the organization that there were so many shared experiences between us, even though my co-founders and I had such different backgrounds. One of us was stage four, diagnosed at age 23. One was in her 20s, diagnosed with gynecologic cancer. Um, my other co-founder I mentioned, she was preventative, like myself, with the BRCA gene. And my other co-founder was diagnosed 28 with triple negative breast cancer. And so traditionally, the space that exists for cancer support says you guys should never meet. You guys stay in your silos. There's survivors here, previvors here, stage four here, and you're not meant to talk to each other. And 
these people had become my best friends. And I was learning so much from them. I was working through grief. I was learning about the genetic testing I should do that we just knew we wanted to create a space that did bring everyone together. I love that caregivers are in this Mm -hmm. space. How does that language begin to allow them in? Yeah. Yeah. So the, I think such a big piece that's left out are the people who support people impacted um, and how much of a toll it can have on caregivers. Um, My dad's an example of supporting my mom through her diagnosis. Um, My partner's an example of supporting me through my preventative surgeries. And they don't, they, they don't receive the support that they need. So we try to create as many spaces, both virtually and in person, where caregivers can be together to share their experiences, what they're struggling with, um, and just, just have that support because they traditionally don't get that support. What's some of the beautiful impact y'all have created thus far? Oh, my gosh. Good question. Um, I would say when we started... We were all about um, in-person support, right? We started doing retreats, and we were very um, just focused on in-person support. And we realized we couldn't get everywhere. Um, We had an ambassador program that was in 46 locations around the U.S. and outside of the U.S. I ran that. I don't know how I ran that. We had, like, about 120 ambassadors, and it was was crazy, um, but beautiful in the best way. Um, And so— in-person support was everything. It still is everything. And then with the pandemic, we really learned that you have to be hybrid. You have to have virtual support. And so we launched a virtual arm of the organization. And every week we have meetups that range from BIPOC breasties, LGBTQ breasties, um, breasties who like to watch Bravo, um, really (laughs) (laughs) anything and everything. If you want to go there or if you want just community and friends, um, we talk a lot about sex and intimacy, post-cancer, post-diagnosis. We talk a lot about um, dating and caregiver support. It really we have every topic you could think of, and that is available every week virtually through Zoom. We launched an app um, a, a few months ago, and that really came from the need of so many people would reach out wanting to be like matchmaked with someone who was maybe also in Kansas and also a mom and newly diagnosed, and we were manually matchmaking everyone, and it it was crazy. It was great, and we realized we needed like an app that was kind of that could do that for people and help them find each other. So we have that. That launched in October. Um, we haven't really promoted it as much as we want to yet, um, but we have about 4,000 users on that. Oh, beautiful. Um, yeah, and so that's that's just a safe space. We have, you know, so much of what we do has been on social media, which is great, but it's not always a safe space. So we're really looking to bring more people to the app. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Bree is going to tell us about a very important decision she made regarding her health. Stick around. And we're back with Brie Myshak, co-founder of Breasties. So June 2020, you decide to have a mastectomy. Mm-hmm. I imagine this was a hard decision or was it just easy? You were like, no, this makes sense. It was, 
you know, kind of both. It was the hardest decision I've ever made, um, but it was also like clearly the most correct and right decision for me. What? Uh, why the hardest? Why? Why the most correct? Yeah, I mean, the hardest was, and this is something I'm I'm really passionate about is my genetic testing results came back inconclusive. So technically, um, you don't really have like the information that you need to prove that you need a preventative mastectomy. Um, and I've since learned that people of color are more likely to get inconclusive genetic testing results. So why is that? Um, because most genetic testing traditionally hasn't been done on people of color. So they don't have enough information. And so what I was hoping to go through genetic testing and get like this clear information, right, of your high risk. But I got like my results were wait and see. I remember the geneticist told me on the phone, um, it's not a no, it's not a yes, it's a wait and see. Because in a few years, they might be able to tell you more with your genetic testing. And I was so upset to get that news. And I didn't realize how much I was hoping for a positive um, result um, in like you have a genetic variant of concern um, because I wanted my doctors to believe me. I wanted to be able to advocate for myself. And I had see, I was seeing my co-founders, community members advocating for themselves. And so finding a care team that would understand that situation was very difficult. Um, I went to see the first doctor in New York and she had completely dismissed me. And I was actually there with my co-founder, Leslie, who's also Latina. And I just took it. I, I had left most of my doctor's appointments in tears. And she, at the end, had said, I really don't like how that doctor talks to you, and you should find another doctor. And I wouldn't have if someone didn't tell me that. I didn't think I have the right to do that as someone preventative. I don't want to take up resources from someone else who's in a diagnosis. Um, and hearing her say that validated it for me, and, and partially as a great friend, and also because she's living with a stage 4 diagnosis. And you do so much to, like— Tell yourself that you don't deserve things um, until someone can tell you that you do. I found the most incredible support. through a medical team in San Francisco and I was living on the East Coast at the time so I had flown into San Francisco. Um, I gave myself a month to stay there um, which I know is a privilege and a lot of people can't do that Um, and I was able to have a preventative mastectomy with sensation preservation which is very new Um, but the day before surgery I was freaking out. I did not sleep at all um, I was with my fiance Larry, and we went hiking. Um, tried to get out of my head. There was actually someone who had recommended this this team to me, who was based in San Francisco, um, a breastie. Now, actually, one of my best friends. We were just texting on the way here. She had had this surgery five or six months before, and I found her on Instagram. Um, she was the one who recommended I, I go to see her. And we had gone hiking, having never met in person before. Mm -hmm. Um, Her boyfriend 
and me and Larry, the four of us, um, we went camping. And Larry and I have never gone camping, so it was <laughs> quite an experience. Um, and her and I just spent the whole time just talking about how she was feeling, that there was days that she had forgotten she had surgery. And that, to me, was like everything I needed to hear of, like, I can live a normal life or find a new normal um, after something like this. Uh, can you tell us about, uh, you said, uh, with sense preservation? Yeah. So traditionally, mastectomy surgeries, when they're done, um, you lose all sensation in your chest. So it's completely numb. So you'll hear stories from people who've had the surgery, who can't feel that they have a shirt on, who can't feel um, a hug, can't feel hot or cold water. And that was something that I had just mentally accepted as part of that process. And then I had seen through social media um, that there was a doctor named Dr. Ann Pellid in San Francisco who was pioneering sensation-preserving mastectomies. So she was diagnosed herself. Um, and going through the process of her diagnosis, and her husband's a nerve surgeon, they were sitting at the dinner table saying, why can't we do surgeries that preserve nerves the same way that surgeries do for all other parts of the body. It just hasn't been considered before. You know, quality of life for someone after mastectomy hasn't been considered before. And they're doing it. Um, oh. they're, yeah, they're doing it with this technology called resensation, um, which helps essentially after your nerves are cut, because sometimes they can't help but cut some of the nerves based on where your breast tissue is during the mastectomy. Um, this technology helps your nerves regrow. So for like a year after surgery, I was having nerve zaps, um, kind of freaky, but because my nerves were like waking up or regrowing. Wow. Uh, how freaking incredible. I read that you took a picture of your mother with you. Do you remember what that picture was? Yeah. So there is a photo of my mom, kind of of her side profile where she's smiling. I believe my dad took it. I like to believe my dad took it. She seems very happy. Um, her curly hair is just showing um, her gold earring is is showing and she's just so so happy that sh her eyes are closed because um, her smile's so big and I had asked my surgeon um, before surgery if I could bring uh, Dr. Pellet if I could bring that photo with me to surgery and she said absolutely and I was like I know if it I know it might be you know violate this the um or break the sanitariness of the room and she was like no absolutely um, and she hung it right over my head. Wow. Actually, yeah, for That's surgery. So yeah, so I could feel like she was there with me. What a good doctor. Yeah, she uh, is incredible. That's amazing. What are things you learned after having a mastectomy that no one told you about? Like, what do you know now? Oh my gosh, so much. You know, <laughs> the biggest thing, which feels so silly that we're still on this, but the biggest thing is it's not a boob job. Um, I thought a lot of people knew that. I've had I've had close people to me share otherwise, um, asking, you know, can I see how you look? I'm thinking of of getting a breast augmentation, and you know, sharing that it's not the same. Um, it's very very different surgeries, and and no judgment to anyone um, f that wants to have a breast augmentation, but it's a very different medical procedure um, than a mastectomy surgery. Um, so physically, it's very taxing on you. Um, it's definitely the hardest physical thing I've had to go through in my life. Um, you can't lift your arms for many weeks. Um, you can't do anything by yourself, even use the restroom, shower. Um, you have drains that are draining fluid from the surgical site for a week, seven days, sometimes more. Um, so you need full-time support and care, um, and that's not even covering the emotional aspect of it. 
um, you just like you you go through so much that you push it down and then it took me months, months to process what I had went through, even though I fully mentally thought I prepared and knew what I signed up for and had the luxury of doing it preventatively. Um, it was a lot. I would say it took me two years to really accept it and really get back into my body through movement. Are you back in your body? I am. I am. Um, I've been so grateful to recently do a yoga teacher training, which was a big piece for me. Yoga was the only thing that felt safe with like more gentle movement. Um, you have such a fear. I had implant-based reconstruction, so you have such a fear of an implant flipping, which happened to me a few months out. Um, and you just, you want to feel safe. You, you know, even just physically, I had spent so much time like hunched over trying to protect myself. Um, so just like physical therapy, yoga, all of it has helped. For those who can't see the the gesture you did, which I think is really beautiful, is you literally opened your chest. You know, you opened your heart. Um, which you know, I, I see a I see a metaphor and a reflection, allowing someone to bring surgical tools to the area of your heart. Right, your chest is your heart, and then uh, and then the healing of that, and then reopening our heart. Um, and so I'm thankful that you opened your heart here and with your community, with, you know, the breasties and the thousands of women you open your heart to every day. Breasties is doing important and incredible work. And if you want to find out more information about their organization, maybe for you, maybe for a friend, visit their website, thebreasties.org. We will leave a link in the show notes. I also suggest you all check out the four-day summit in June where hundreds of people come together to find support and build a stronger community of the many lives impacted by cancer. And you can also find them on any social media platform you use. Thank you. Peace and love. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher Studios. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabriella Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Abby Aguilar. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. Thanks. Thanks.